Matthew chapter 1 is where we'll be this morning. We have been opening God's wonderful Christmas gifts to us. We first unboxed the gift of life, God's most basic gift. We found that this gift of life puts a requirement on us to use our lives in obedience to God's commands. We carefully peeled back the wrapping of the second gift, the gift of a promise of restoration with God and with others. That promise also came with a requirement that we put our trust in the God who makes that promise. Last week, we tore opening the wrapping on God's third gift, the gift of grace. Through a genealogy, we found God's great tapestry of grace interwoven throughout human history. But even grace makes a demand on us that we repent of our sins and turn ourselves to God. This morning, we have a fourth gift, and it is probably the smallest gift. When, when we were kids, I remember sitting around the tree being most excited, not about the little tiny box, but about the great huge box, right? Because the big gift is the best gift. Maybe it's a bicycle or a trampoline or a swing set for the backyard, whatever it might be, the bigger, the better. But as you get older, you find out that oftentimes it's not the biggest gift that is the best gift. A lot of times it's a small gift, maybe a gift that comes in a little box about this size. A couple years ago, or last year, excuse me, I bought Carrie a box that was about that big and about that thick. And inside that box was something a whole lot more valuable than a trampoline or a bicycle. Gifts that come in a box like that are very valuable indeed, even though they're small. So as we consider the smallest gift, just remember the size doesn't necessarily indicate the value. Stand with me as we read from Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 1, we will read verses 18 through 25. This is God's Word. And if you let it, it will change your life. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not, be, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did just as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And she called, and he called his name, Jesus. Pray with me. God, thank you for your gift of this child. May your smallest gift be the one that looms largest in our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. We're looking at the birth story from Matthew's gospel. And to be honest, it's not really much of a birth story. Matthew kind of tells us what happens before the birth, and then he tells us, oh yeah, he was born. And then he tells us what happens after the birth. For Matthew, it's not so much about the birth, but about the effect that that birth has on certain people around 
this son. Luke gives us a little more detail about the particulars of the incident, the traveling to Bethlehem we find in Luke. We find them uh, not able to stay uh, in the guest house, uh, the guest room of, of the house, and so they have, to, they have to sleep basically with the animals in the best thing that they can come across. But Matthew gives us a particular detail that Luke doesn't. He tells us about the internal struggle of this man named Joseph. And he starts with the predicament Joseph finds himself in. Look in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. By the way, this is a hyperlink back to verse 1. When he begins the genealogy, he uses that same word for genealogy here uh, that we translate birth. And so he says, the genealogy of Jesus all goes through all the names. And then he says, now here's how the genealogy played out. Here's how this actually came to be. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, betrothal in that day uh, was like an engagement on steroids, kind of. Okay, It's not the engagement in the sense that when you're engaged today, you're kind of planning for married life, you're getting things ready, but you're not really married, right? You know, you could call it off and that that's, you know... Sometimes that happens. You can, you can kind of delay it for a while to finish school before you really make every, you know, make the marriage official or whatever. Betrothal is not like that. It's much stronger. In fact, it's actually the beginning of marriage. We think of the wedding as the beginning of marriage. In that day, the wedding wasn't the beginning. The betrothal was the beginning. And the wedding was the consummation of it. So the betrothal was so much a part of marriage that in order to end a betrothal, you had to actually get a divorce. Like you, couldn't, you couldn't just end it. You actually had to go through the legal work of making a divorce. If a bride's parents had paid the dowry, which usually happened early in the betrothal, then the husband had to give it back if they decided not to be married. If he actually went through with that divorce at that point, he has to give the money back. That's a good, that's a good reason to think carefully before you end a betrothal. If one of them dies, the one that's left is a widow or a widower. If one's unfaithful, it's adultery, punishable just like in full-fledged marriage by death under Jewish law. Mary and Joseph are mostly married. Luke tells us that Mary went to the home of Elizabeth for a few months. So she gets the angelic visit. She goes to visit Elizabeth for a few months to help her with the birth of John. And by the time she returns, doubtly, doubtlessly, um, undoubtedly, there we go, she's probably beginning to show. As Matthew puts it, she was found to be with child. Now, Joseph doesn't know God's plan yet. He hasn't had a visit from an angel he hasn't had years of going to churches and seeing Christmas plays play this story out time after time after time. He doesn't know how this is going to work out. So imagine his surprise when Mary comes back and he first sees his fiancée with a baby bump. What's he going to do? Imagine the fear setting in when he realizes, wait a minute, this isn't my child. How is Joseph going to respond to this gift? Doesn't look like much of a gift now. Well, verse 19. And her husband Joseph, 
This is how much of a marriage it was. You would call the man the husband and the woman the wife, even though it hadn't been fully consummated yet. The husband And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Here's, here's a valuable insight on human nature. The way that we respond to God's gifts is determined by the character that resides at our core, especially when that gift is a difficult gift to receive. Let, let me tell you what I mean. Whenever God gives us something that's hard for us, take an adversity of some kind or suffering or or something along those lines, we only respond to that gift by the nature of who we are within the depths of our souls. If we're just, if we're righteous, we're going to respond justly. We're going to respond righteously. Why? Because that's who we are. Now, if we're not, then we're not going to respond that way. We often respond to difficult situations in less than righteous ways. We lash out when things get stressful. We become anxious over small details that go wrong. We have lapses in judgment that we would normally avoid. We assume that stress somehow makes us not ourselves, like a candy bar commercial with the tagline, you're not yourself when you're hungry. But the fact of the matter is we are ourselves in those stressful times. When we're tired, when we're hungry, when we're not feeling well, when it's been a hard day, that's when our genuine character comes to the surface. You see, when everything's going well, we can put up the facade and act with the best of them. But when it's all going to pot, you find out who you really are. Because then the facade comes off. And what comes out is what's in your heart. Isn't that scary? Isn't it scary to think that sometimes people can see who you really are just by putting you through the ringer? What's so amazing about the story of Joseph is that when things get really tough for him, and I, I can't imagine how tough it would be to find your spouse with child not from you. I never have to worry about that with my spouse. I never have, have questioned her on that because I know that she can be trusted. So I can't imagine what it feels like to Joseph. But it's in that time, in that, in that worst of situations, the Bible says being a just man. You see, at the core of Joseph's character is a righteousness. That's what that word is, just. It's the same word for righteous. And that righteousness is what's going to drive what he does. So, so look for just a second at how he responds. First, he doesn't respond harshly. He doesn't lash out. He doesn't drag her before the priest to be stoned to death like the law says he could. He doesn't even drag her into a court of law to get a divorce like the law says he should. But he doesn't deny the severity of the situation either. He doesn't ignore it as if it's going to go away on its own. He tries to find a way to balance both devotion to God, God's commandments, and devotion to Mary. He doesn't respond quickly either. The beginning of verse 20 says, but as he considered these things. Consideration takes time, and it takes a great deal of effort, at least if you do it right. It takes mulling over the details over and over and over again. Thinking through the possibilities to come up with the best plan of action, it, it requires patience and wisdom, insight and diligence. It's one of the hallmarks of righteousness. There are some times when we should act quickly, but often when we speak or act too quickly, we create more problems than we solve. We're prone to speaking and acting wrongly. But when we take our time, 
we often come up with a better way to say it and a better way to do it. He also doesn't respond loudly. The end of verse 19, he resolved to divorce her quietly, not knowing exactly how Mary became pregnant. He, 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 he knows he has to balance his responsibility to uphold God's law, but he cares for her so much that he wants to act in a way that's consistent with mercy too. That's why he's not willing to put her to shame. Now, for most people, when when God uh, uh, when we when we see a law and we see someone breaking a law, we think go get them, right? Well, I saw the other day I saw someone speeding through the neighborhood, and I knew there was a cop up the street just a little bit, and I was like, get him, get him, go go for it, because I want to see that guy. You know, that's not mercy. I know, but can I tell you something? Righteousness involves both. It involves a willingness to look at the law, to look at the way that things God say that they are, to call a spade a spade and not shy away from that, but also to show kindness and gentleness with the way that you deal with that person. That's why Paul says, speaking the truth in love, let us grow into all things into him who is the head. Because you've got to have both. Jesus was a man full of grace and truth. Both. It's not just one or the other. You can't have grace without truth. That's wishy-washy. Grace without truth is what happens when someone says, well, let's not punish people for doing the wrong thing. Those poor people, let's not make any responsibilities for them. And you end up having more of the same problems. When you enable someone who's addicted, what do they do? They stay addicted. They don't get any better. When you take away the punishment for a crime, that crime just increases. It happens. You want proof of it? <laughs> just look around. But you also can't go the opposite way and be hammer-fisted on every single problem. We can't be the Cobra Kai's, no mercy. We can't do that. I knew Robert would like that one. We can't do that. There's a way to balance both, and Joseph is looking for that way. So he's going to divorce her quietly. He's not going to drag her name through the mud. He's just going to quietly do what he needs to do to do his very best to protect her reputation and to move on with life. All of this reminded me of something. I had a conversation one time with someone who was older and wiser, and he told me something interesting, something I hadn't thought of before. He pointed me to Proverbs chapter 3. You know this passage. It's very familiar. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Now, when I think of that, I normally think of the, the don't commands in that, the, 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 the basics of, of you trust in God, you don't lean on your own understanding. Which is, which is in the tense that, that you have to keep not leaning on your own understanding. Because you keep wanting to lean, you have to keep reminding yourself, don't lean. And even though sometimes it's easy to start leaning, you have to keep on, don't lean, don't lean, don't lean, right? It's a constant battle. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Look for God in every single thing that you're doing, in every way that you're doing it, and he'll make straight your paths. He's going to show you the way to go. It doesn't say, though, that God will reveal his ways to you. It doesn't say that he'll explain the road. It doesn't say that he'll give you all the detail that you need or want. He basically says God's going to make sure your path, 
is straightened. When you devote yourself to God, when you trust him with your whole heart and mind and soul and strength too, when you stop leaning on what you think you know, when you seek to align your steps with God's character and actions, he'll help you walk in the right path. And that's exactly what he does with Joseph. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now Joseph learns the truth. It wasn't Mary's infidelity that caused this child that's in her womb. It's actually God's fidelity. His fidelity to his promises throughout the ages to bless the nations and to send a son to reign on David's throne forever. It was God's faithfulness, not Mary's unfaithfulness that has brought this gift. So don't fear, says the angel. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. God's stopping Joseph from making a big mistake. He's getting in the way and saying, okay, no, no, no. You're about to walk down the wrong path. Let me straighten your path for you. Because you're trying, you're doing your best, you're seeking to honor me, but you're about to make a mistake. So I'm going to redirect you so that you don't make that mistake. That's what that proverb is promising. Sometimes, even when we're doing our best, even when we're seeking after God's will, we still can align ourselves in the wrong path. We still take the wrong ways of doing things, not because we're trying to do them wrong, but because we're just not perfect. We make mistakes. But God says, no, 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 I'm not going to let you make that mistake. I'm going to straighten your path so that you walk down the right path instead of the wrong. Sometimes, sometimes God uses other people to do that. Sometimes he uses circumstances. Sometimes an angel appears in a dream. But whatever God's method, he straightens our path. And then he does what we wish God would do for all of us sometimes. He shows Joseph the next steps. Wouldn't it be great to know three, four, or five steps down the road? Verse 21, she will bear a son. You're going to have to skip a couple, Daryl. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. What a special gift of God this is. He was a gift of salvation swaddled and lying in a feeding trough. His name Jesus was a Greek version of a Hebrew name. Joshua means salvation. This angel describes that salvation clearly. He will save his people from their sins. This wasn't a plan B for God. As though some plan of his went awry and he had to come up with something else on the fly. No, no, no. This was his plan from the beginning. Verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Isaiah had declared this to Ahaz, there was an immediate application. Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel were about to attack and conquer the southern kingdom of Judah. God, through his prophet, promised that there would be a sign that this evil plan would not come to pass. A child would be born. And even within the first couple of years of this child's life, that plan would be destroyed. In fact, these nations themselves would be overrun by Assyria. But there was a more eternal application. Prophecy often does this. There's something immediate that it applies to, but that points toward a greater truth down the road. And this prophecy isn't just pointing to a child in Ahaz's day. We didn't simply need a leader to save us from our enemies. 
because our biggest enemy isn't a foreign king. It isn't another country that's trying to rise to power. Our biggest enemy isn't a political party that disagrees with what we think or that seems to be taking our country down a path of destruction. Our biggest enemy isn't those folks that we have to deal with that are just pains in the neck. You know who I'm talking about. You got a picture in your head when I said that. That's not our biggest enemy. Our biggest enemy is the person we see in our mirror. We need someone to save us from us. Jesus would be that child that would signify the approaching destruction of the sinful nature within each and every one of us. Matthew's so adamant that the scriptural prophecy must be fulfilled that he goes out of his way to show that it is and that this birth is that fulfillment. In fact, he basically says that this birth happens for the express purpose of fulfilling that prophecy. All this happened in order to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. So in Christ, in this child, this this small gift of God, we have all of God's promises throughout the ages reaching their ultimate crescendo. Now that Joseph sees God's hand in his circumstances, he's ready to fully embrace God's gift. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph's righteous deeds demonstrate his faith in God's son. You see, oftentimes the gift of God is difficult to receive because we don't understand it. We don't know why we're getting it. We don't know what God's purpose is in it. But there is a way to receive that gift. For Joseph, it was found because an angel showed him what to do. But he was a righteous man. He was looking for it. Let me boil down what I think is the way to receive that difficult gift from God. That small gift, that gift that doesn't look all that impressive. God gives us his son but requires us to put faith in Christ. The way that we receive God's gifts, whether they're easy or difficult, whether they are beautiful or hideous, the way that we receive God's gifts is by faith. And there is no other way to receive this gift, this precious gift of this child, but by faith. In faith, thanking him, the one you're relying on. In faith, trusting in him to forgive you of your sins, to save you from the sins that have enslaved you, that have trapped you, that have bound you. By doing that, we are cherishing God's smallest, most precious gift. We are saved from our certain destruction. And we are redeemed to a new life that only he can give us. Funny how all these gifts come together in this one gift. This gift of life finds new life in Christ. This gift of a promise of restoration finds its fulfillment in him. This gift of grace we recognize as we repent and turn to Christ. All of God's gifts, every single one of them, point us to a manger. They hold our hands and they walk us directly to the child. Father, I pray that we would cherish your most precious gift. As good as all the other gifts are, as powerful as, as everything else that you've done for us is, we recognize that it all comes down to this one gift. Everything centers with your son. Father, I pray that like Joseph, we would receive your gift with faith, even though it might mean 
some struggle and some difficulty, even though it might mean changing who we are into who you want us to be. It will mean that, even though it might mean forsaking life, even though it might mean giving up everything we have for you. We recognize that you are the pearl of great price. And so we willingly sell everything we have to get that pearl. We willingly give everything up. We willingly do whatever it takes, whatever you require of us, whatever price we have to pay to follow you. Father, I pray that in this sun, we would find everything we've been searching for. God, as you're moving in hearts, move us to follow you in faith, to trust you, for you're the one that saves us from sin. You work in this time in Christ's name. Amen.